Welcome to The Other Side of 40. My name is April Grant, and I'm here to help women make positive changes with their lives after the age of 40. Let The Other Side of 40 become your community to find inspiration and support to start the next chapter of your life. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Other Side of 40. Today, I have a relatively new friend on. Um, We have connected on Facebook and especially in the new app, Clubhouse. And every room I've been in, she has been extremely insightful, motivating, inspirational, and I could really go on and on. So instead, I'm just going to read her bio. Everything she has done in her career is to inspire, empower, and transform lives. It has looked differently throughout her life, from the classroom to the corporate boardrooms and on stages around the world. Dr. Brown has been working in the areas of organizational development, executive coaching, organizational change, and transformation and leadership development for over 20 years. Dr. Brown knows firsthand that mindful leadership is a key to business effectiveness and growth. Her skills were honed through over two decades as an educator and school administrator with the Department of Defense. Her passion for international travel and global relations created the framework for her extensive work throughout the world, creating and developing leaders and high performance teams. Dr. Brown is the CEO of her executive president, Presence. LLC, an executive coaching company for female executives, the host of Walking Through Glass, the podcast. She is currently researching the intersectionality of imposter syndrome with race, class, and trauma amongst African-American women and other minority ethnic groups. So with all of that, welcome. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. When I listen to that bio, I'm like, who are they talking about sometimes when you get there? Because I'm like, I'm 29 plus tax and gratuity. How did all that stuff get on there? <laughs> oh, man. I, I, when you start thinking about, you know, what happened when I was talking to my kids about something in high school and they're like, well, did you do this in high school? And I'm like, yeah, I did. They're like, well, tell us about it. I'm like, that's a long time ago. I don't know if I remember any details. I just... <laughs> I just remember I did it. I can't even remember right now what it was they were asking me. It was like, did I do something in class? And I was like, yeah, I did. Well, how'd that go? I'm like, I don't know. 25 years ago now, I'm not a clue of what happened. So it's very interesting thinking about your age. Um, (laughs) But we're going to start with my signature question. What was your awakening moment? Wow. What a powerful question. What I think about my awakening in this season, because I live my life in seasons, so I'll speak to the awakening moment in this season. It would have to be, um, gosh, what was it? Now it seems so forever ago. It would have to be, what, 2014, 2015. And as I sat at the table uh, with my now you know, ex-husband, and I had been questioning so many things, even the the core of who I was. And at that particular point, I was like a wildflower seed that was blowing all through the winds and hadn't really landed and didn't even know where I wanted to land. And in the midst of that discussion is that he said something that turned a switch 
in me because things weren't necessarily the best, but I, and I'd known that and I felt like I, I needed to move. I needed to make a shift in life. I needed to make a shift in leadership. I needed to make a shift in all so many different areas, but yet I was staying, you know, where I was because it was safe. It was comfortable. But yet when I sat there at that table with this person that I had then been married to, I don't know, 10 plus years, nearly, you know, well over 10 years and listen to them spew out these horrible things about what they thought of me. I realized at that point, the reason why they hit and they stuck is because for years I thought that way about myself until he said something, um, that gelled. So the things that he was saying to give you a little bit of context that again, in my role as the educator, then in my role as a school principal, my days were long. Um, I had position, I had a sense of power and I had a, a great purpose, especially in that community. And my husband had retired. And so he was the wife of Dr. I mean, he was the husband of Dr. Brown. And so he had been retired. So it, that, that peace and that ego peace was there. Um, I think maybe even on both sides, you know, and that honesty. And so um, the things that he said was like, you chose your job, you know, over me. You chose your child, you're not a good mother. You're choosing a job and money over your child. And, you know, you're, and just everything that I wasn't. He just kept telling me all these things that I, was, I wasn't. And that's why I said it kind of hit home. And as I sat there, it just, you know, the darts and I'm sliding down into the seed and until he gets to a point and he says something and my mantra is 50% of knowing who you are is knowing who you're not. Mm. So get clear about that. So you'd be conscious of where you're supposed to be and consistently show up as yourself. So what he said in the midst of that was, and you are the dumbest woman I've ever met in my entire life. Those were the best words he could have ever said to me because what I knew since birth was I was smart as shit. (laughs) You could call me a lot of names. Dumb was not one of them. (laughs) You can call me a lot of names, but that's not one of them. And so when he said that, it was like a spark. See, I said, God, if this is supposed to be over, I don't want it to be just me. I don't want it to be like what's in my head. I need a sign. So there were things leading up to that. And so we were having a conversation. He went into this diatribe. And then after he said it, he's like, settle back down. Think about Linda Blair and the exorcist of being possessed by the demon, spewing out the green spew. And then she goes back to being a little girl. Okay, that was my moment. And so I look watching this and he literally, once he finished saying these things, he like kind of came back and he said, you know, that's why it feels so good. We haven't sat down and talked in a long time. And that's why, you know, I really just love you. It's like as if he didn't know what he had been saying to me for about 40 minutes. Wow. And so I knew that that was an awakening moment for myself because that began to really have me dig into what is my I am story? Because if that was a lie and he's been spewing out lies, what are the lies I've been telling myself? And what am I willing to sacrifice time, energy, resources, money to really walk and live in my truth. Mm -hmm. And so that's how the leadership movement was born. That's how I said, okay, I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the answers, but I am getting ready to figure it out. What is it for me? Mm -hmm. Not my family, 
not my child, who am I? And I just begin to ask myself that. And so that awakening, I say, was the starting point. And then along the way, that was the trigger, that was the break. And then the, along the way from now, um, from then until now, there's been other little micro explosions, you know, along the way. But that I would say had to begin be the beginning of the end of who I was and begin to define who I am. Oh, that that's powerful. Um, I have been in several conversations of late. Well, not particularly re- now, since my awakening moment is the way I should say it. So it's about the last year and a half where we have those types of conversations with people where I am setting boundaries and words like that have come back at me. And I'm like, well, I guess we're just on two different pages and I'm willing to walk away. And, you know, what's interesting about doing that when you really set the boundary of like, I'm not going to be treated this way anymore. And they want to spew all the stuff and you're like, well, okay, if that's what you think, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you. I know who I am, but how quickly they want to come back and reverse and undo. And Mm -hmm. it's like, no, you made it clear. You made it very clear about where I am in your head. And it's okay. I mean, I mean, I'm hurt. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm very clear about where I stand. And if you were to go so far as to say, I'm, I'm dumb when I know I'm not. There's a lot of things that I may not be, uh, do well or super proficient at, but intelligence is not one of them. Um, to have that from your significant other is pretty hurtful. So you said it started your leadership, leadership. I'm reading it on the back of the (laughs) leadership movement. Um, And it started that movement. So tell us more about what the goal is and how that, how that actually started. So the goal of the leadership movement is to help women shift the way they think to elevate the way they lead. And by lead, I mean learn, experience, apply, and develop as leaders by really owning their story and being unapologetic about who they are. And so in the core, when you think about how we learn as women and we step into the space of what options that we do choose, what we even pick. So it, when I said in it, it's bigger than that moment is why answering the question, why don't women go into math and STEM fields as much, you know, so elevating the way we think about who we are and what was defined and told us instead of our authentic self. So how we learn things, um, how we experience things instead of putting everybody before us, putting ourselves first. I used to say, I want to start a selfish mommy movement (laughs) to counteract the culture of as moms, always going, let me not, you know, um, do. And so I have begun, I did begin to work differently, even with my son, for instance, you know, love him for life. But I realized that what was I teaching him? Because they model, children model, and we set the tone for them. And I wonder why he was doing certain things as far as, you know, um, his generosity. And these aren't bad things, but it can get to the point where, you become self-sacrificing. And so I would watch and he would do these things. I'm like, why is he doing that? Well, guess who he was modeling? You. He was modeling me. And so I began to also set those particular boundaries with, um, you know, as your mom, yes, 
I'm taking care of you, but here's our, our working agreement. And I asked parents, women, do you have a working agreement, you know, with that? So if you have something as he got older and I wasn't doing his calendar, you know, from the, the Awanas meetings, sports meetings and PTA, mm -hmm. all that. When he was, I said, I need to take you somewhere or be somewhere. I need you to let me know. And here's the window I need. So I could put it on my calendar because I always put his calendar on first. Why? Because I'm the mom. And he, you know, yeah. it's dependent on me. But if he forgot to tell me something and then I had planned something for myself, uh, the, the previous self would say, oh, let me drop the plans I have for myself because my child needs me to do X, Y, Z. And the authentic me starts saying, I'm sorry, you did not let me know. I actually have plans right now. I am not canceling those plans. So I can help you work through some options for yourself or um, you'll have to let them know that you won't be there. You're not coming. You're not participating because the expectation is if you want this. And the first time I actually had to, you know, call my own bluff because I was like, can I really do it in my head? I'm going, can I really do it? You know, and I can't do it. And it was, again, one of those micro moments I told you along that piece, like, yes. And did he die? No, he didn't. No. But guess what he began to do? Tell you. Sure, I knew. <laughs> or even better yet, he began to work out his own solutions. And, and thank goodness that our children live in a time of like Uber and other stuff. So he would go, okay, well, I could, you know, take an Uber. Now he wasn't eight or nine. I mean, he's now like, he's much, he's, He's in high school at this particular point when yeah. we're when we're starting this relationship, and even in middle school. So, so yeah. those are the things that we have to think about and begin to think differently about who we are and putting ourselves first, so we can serve better. Yeah, and model that behavior. Well, okay. So there's two little things that I got that I wanted to. One, it was just a side note. So you were talking about school girls going into STEM. Um, I work with an organ a local organization and there's actually a switch between junior high and high school when girls want more attention from guys and don't want to be outcast as a smart girl. And so they have full intentions of going into a STEM program be in middle school, normally around eighth grade, it starts to fall off because they want to be a popular girl and they want the attention from the boys and they don't want to push so hard because now they're being put on the outskirts. And I ended up telling my girlfriend this, uh, our kids are friends, um, but they're, her daughter goes to a different school. And I said, she's like, yeah, she used to be so much into STEM subjects, you know, math and science, and now she couldn't care less. And I had this conversation with her and then she went back to her daughter and her daughter was like, oh, I am basically, I'm shrinking myself to fit in. That's what we do. We shrink ourselves to fit in. And that's what she was doing. And instead of embracing all of her and all of her interests, she wanted to fit in. She still has the same friends, but it was just the fear of losing those friends because she didn't want, I mean, it's a new school, there's new people. On top of that, that certainly didn't help. But a lot of people, a lot of students when they hit high school have a whole new group of friends. So, you know, it's not un abnormal to be in that situation, but I was happy to hear that she has reasserted herself in math and science. That's just an aside. Um. <laughs> that's true. But that's, that's, that's the core of what I'm talking about is that if we really can help shift the way we're thinking, 
about how we have to show up. And that when young women can see, you know, whether it's their mothers, their aunts, or other women as role models who are not shrinking themselves and who are not, then guess what it helps them do? Begin to shift the way they think, but also get to the root of the why, like you were talking about. Yeah. And then the other thing is, so I'm a, a TV junkie. And so I watch all the, the trash TV. Real Housewives is a favorite. Um, but there's a storyline on one of them, um, OC, where the woman is dealing with her sobriety. And I point, I bring this up because in the commentary, a lot of people are like, well, if she's going and doing all these things, who's taking care of the kids? Mm. Mind you, she is married. <laughs> So who is taking care of the kids is da 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 dad. Like the idea that if a woman does, you know, goes off, has a midlife crisis, any of that stuff that the family automatically falls apart means that how much of it is a family unit. And I've talked a lot about this online lately about reframing the structure of the men's role in a household from helper to partner because you know a lot of women are like my husband helps around the house and i'm like the idea that he helps is the problem it's his house if you were to leave he would be responsible for taking care of the house so why is it when you're there he's just your helper and you know some men get offended Um, a lot of women are like yay but then they don't follow through with actually making that agreement you know the work agreement you're talking about we have that same agreement between me and my husband of this is what I need and this is how I want it to, to go forward. And part of that is we just grew up and they're modeling what their parents did. Mm-hmm. The, even though that doesn't actually make them happy in their couple and their relationship. Mm-hmm. It's mom did everything. Mom, you know, took care of everything. Mom had a job, took care of the household, took care of all the kids. Dad just came home and sat down Now, in this day and age, that means something different than a generation ago, and the women are still taking on all the work without the the assistance of their husband, and their husband is like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm going to go to work and come home and peace out, you know, I'll put, I'll read the kids a bedtime story, and that's, you know, a good father, because he's home every night, so I've been working to reframe that aspect, but where, where I, got off got off topic was the whole idea that the father when you were talking about being a selfless selfish mother selfish mama movement um that we are not allowed to take that time for ourselves because it goes back to well who's going to take care of the kids as if the father was not 50 percent of the caretaking responsibilities Right. And I, you know, I feel as, as women as a whole, and particularly as black women, that we often have to put our trauma on the shelf, our mental health on the shelf, our needs on the shelf and work our black girl magic or be there to be the rock and the pillar that the community needs, that people need that. Um, and I speak from the framework cause I am a black woman. So I'm sure women around the world, you know, do this, but the narrative that I'm speaking from is that particular narrative is that we don't have permission and we're still asking permission to be who we're called to be 
instead of just being. And so there's some things that we have to unlearn. We have to kind of get in that headspace and rewrite and rescript that narrative and reframe it because the models that we may have seen and the verbiage that we have maybe, you know, have used to feed our identity of self is not necessarily um, true to our authentic self. And so it's finding the distinction between the two. Yeah. And what we keep, what do we really use? Because it's going to help nourish us. And what is, where's the trash of it that we throw away um, for that? So let's drink the orange juice, not eat the carton. Mm, yes, I agree. And it's so, where do you think for, so I have an idea for where it shifts. Where do you think that it really starts making a shift with women and why they don't live up to their full potentials or what have you seen in your over the years? I've I seen that the fact that um, trauma is that in shame. So in toxic shame, not just shame, but toxic shame and trauma and not um, again. And let me, let me backtrack for a second to, to put that in context without going into a dissertation of it is that when we talk about shame, you know, there's healthy shame and then there's toxic shame. And when we glean on to toxic shame, then we begin to internalize it as feelings and emotions and parts of our identity. Um, and, you know, regular shame keeps you from running out of the middle of the street like Lady Godiva in the middle of downtown. You see what I mean? <laughs> it's right. Uh, maybe I don't because being naked running around the middle of downtown probably is not acceptable. Healthy shame, right? right. You don't you don't have that, I, that as an identity crisis. But yet, if you had someone ridicule you about, you know, parts of your body or, or what it was to be, you know, naked or even, you know, your sexuality at that particular point, there's a toxic shame that you begin to internalize that I can't be naked because I'm not good enough. I'm ugly. My body's not beautiful. <laughs> Two totally different types. And that toxic shame happens very early on, usually between well, it can happen at any particular time when we see ramifications of that. But any time between the ages of zero and eight, when we're learning who we are, and it really begins to sink in at about eight. So you talk about young girls and beginning to shift, not wanting to do that and fit in right on time with their calendar of how they begin to cultivate and understand who self is. So when we talk about being over 40 and that we have unresolved issues from when we were young girls. Yeah. And um, I won't even dig into the whole context of, you know, generational traumas <laughs> and experiences. And so we don't want to deal with that because what our brain does, it protects us. It wraps around us and says, you know, I, the amygdala, not just even your whole brain, because there's a prefrontal cortex and all that. So let me be very specific. Your amygdala, which is the part of your subconscious, okay, which deals with other self says, wait a minute, um, you were hurt. It did not feel good. I'm going to protect you. I know what's happening. Stop. I want to stop you from ever being hurt. Mm. And so it, it masks a lot of those things. And so it'll, it'll remind you of things because it's more interested in protecting you than helping you thrive into something new and going on that particular adventure. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm simple. I hope just to kind of create that, that, yeah. that symbolism for, for doing that. And so what begins to happen is that we ourselves that's that imposter bully that i talk about that phenomena is that to go sit in that pain of what happened or the pain of our thoughts abandonment so it's not even being something but feeling like you were abandoned 
or left out or mistreated or have financial abuse, whatever, whatever that trauma was, is that I don't want to go deal with it. So I'm going to cover that up. But yet when I'm making decisions, I notice that I don't tend to go, oh, I only go this far mm-hmm. because there's a whole big aspect of me that I have not made aware. So you asked the first question about a sense of awareness. It's that I only want to know certain things. The other things are too painful and I do not want to deal with them right now. That's a lot of <laughs> the root of why. So when we sit in it and we realize, oh, this is why, now I can go back and reframe those memories. And that's that whole concept of um, neurolinguistic programming, you know, um, and cognitive behavioral theory is to be able to really begin to reframe and to go visit those moments in our right now and process them differently and reframe them differently and see, you know, now with our given lived experiences, yeah. you know, that it wasn't that it made it any better, but that we, we lived through it and there's the opportunity and the infinite possibility aspect of it. And I think that we don't do that enough because sometimes people just don't know. And number two is that they don't want to know. So the difference is some people like, I want to stay in that whole phrase Okay, think about this. How in your life and how long did you hear the term ignorance is bliss? Our entire lives. I still, so, I mean, it's playing out today. Right? <laughs> so, so here's the thing. If we heard ignorance is bliss, that falls in our psyche, see? Yeah. And say, see, you really don't want to know. We don't, we, if you don't know, then you don't have to deal with it. And if you say, again, my favorite one that I love to, to debunk is um, you want your cake and eat it too. Well, who don't want to eat their cake? Why don't you give me a cake if I can't eat it? <laughs> you keep saying <laughs> Right? Right. These are things that have been repeated for as my lifetime and then some, right? Yeah, definitely. Over and over and over again. What do you think that is saying to your subconscious that's storing how to protect you? So when you go, why don't I feel like I deserve that, for women particularly, why don't I, you know, um, feel like I deserve this raise? Oh, because you want your cake and eat it too. You got a good job. You should be happy with that. See? Plays out different language. Now, that's what I mean. I mean, those are those things. You know, my my other alarm saying, girl, see, I I get all popped up about that. And so with, with that part of it, that's why. Those are some of the reasons why. And when you have that awakening and when you begin to really have some time with yourself, so during this pandemic, I had a conversation yesterday. I was doing a, a podcast interview and we we're talking about, you know, this season, especially with the pandemic and COVID and people being feeling isolated and all that, is that people are experiencing lots of triggers right now. Mm-hmm. And so the next wave of pandemic is a mental health pandemic, to be honest with you. Yeah. Is that it's already here, but it's really once they get a vaccine for COVID, what is the vaccine for your mental health? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I mean, when we go, when we look at all of the things and granted, I grew up more of the latchkey side of, you know, being home by yourself a lot. Then we went, we are, we've swung to the other side of the pendulum where now the kids do tons of things. And to hear the stories about the, you know, families who are, you know, the kids are crying because they don't have any place to go and they don't have anything to do is just, to me a lot, like it, it, it speaks a lot of about how busy you are that the kids just can't take some time to be away 
and not see their friends. Like they're not to say they um, seeing your friends is a bad thing, but when you take it in the grand scheme of things where we are trying to do this for protection, this isn't for fun. And to be able to say, listen, this is a way we're going to be able to communicate from here on out. I think a lot of our anxieties are coming out of our generation of being left alone. And so we are now putting those onto our kids. Like Absolutely. when I look at my kids, my kids are fine. Like, like I won't say a hundred percent fine. They're probably, but they're probably like in the 90% range, right? Of we're home. We'll chat via text. We'll chat via, you know, computer. We're good. We'd like to get outside. We'll just go play outside right now, you know? And of course I have more than one. So that helps. There's three of them to play together, but the mental health aspect of allowing the downtime, mm-hmm. because I think being in the downtime forces you to think about all those other things. When you're home all the time <laughs> with nothing to put on your, you can't even put things on your plate if you want to. There's like, and you know, you can, you can get zoomed out. So <laughs> mm-hmm. there's only so much you could put on your plate right now because you know, we're home I think a lot of things are coming up for people and what they're understanding is, is falling short Uh and really hurting their mind and spirit in this season. And it's just very heart wrenching to see, and not to say I'm not experiencing it myself because I have my own (laughs) issues dealing with being home. I, this last week, I think I've realized like the extroverted part of my spirit is like dying um, (laughs) at home, but you know, I'll get through it. I'll be all right. Um, But how do you suggest women start to take back their life? Well, I call it, I have a program called put the me back in time. (laughs) Okay. So if you think about when you spell time, there's me in there. Right, right. And so with, with, with that, to get to me, I, I comes from that. You have to replace <laughs> that other piece. And so to deal with um, the I. So we have to really, you know, transform how I see me, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> when we think about time. I schedule time with myself. It's mm-hmm. non-negotiable time period. Whether I do something or nothing, it's my business. I schedule it without having to fill it with stuff. Mm. Okay. And it starts with, um, and I learned this a year, gosh, years ago when I took my first role, I moved in school administration and I had uh, one of the, the local chaplain's wife and she said, Dina, you know, I see you going and moving and always going. She goes, how much time do you take for yourself? And I said, well, I can't because I got to do this. She said, no, you don't. She said, are you telling me you're not worth five minutes? When she put it like that, I was like, what? She said, start taking five minutes, put it, and she said, calendar it, five minute breaks and work up to 15. She said, take five and work up to at least 15 that you schedule through the day. She said, whether, and she said, not working. And like, I'm on a break, but I'm on my computer. Right. I'm on my break, but I'm on the phone. I'm on my break and I'm reading books. She said, no, just five minutes to just be. You can go for a walk if you need to. You know, listen to some music if you need to. 
but it's not that you're engaged. She said, you know, you really need that to recoup. And she said, if you can take a power nap, do, you know, do that. And so that at that point, this had to be in 2011. Okay. Um, oh gosh, 10 years ago, almost 10 years ago. Ooh, you you started thinking about that time. I started thinking about that time, 10, almost 10 years ago. So I've been doing this for 10 years. And so to really schedule it, and if you looked at, if you show me your calendar, whether you do it on paper or you do it digitally, I'll show you what your priorities are. Where mm. are you? That, you know, and it's funny because this morning I had <laughs> wonderful planner that my girlfriend bought me like two years ago and i it's a it's actually a really good planner it has dates um but it also breaks it down by month and by day and then it has like just free flow free free flow writing pages um but part of it is what skills and habits do you want to work on this week what is your personal to-do list what are this week's wins what are this week's priorities and I cracked it open in November this year <laughs> again. And I was like, I looked at it when I sat down today and I was like, I am not use, using it again. It is sitting on the side again. And I haven't done anything since for the last two weeks in it. So I definitely, and I see when I do most of my planning on uh, digitally. And so mm -hmm. when you say, where do you, I show up? I'm like, Ooh, Ooh, <laughs> like, I'm in my head. I could see my calendar. I was like, Oh, okay. I see. I see what I am prioritizing and mm -hmm. not, not to say I'm happy about that. Um, you know, there needs to be some shift in priorities. Definitely. Yeah. You, and, and, and I know that we, it's not about deposing ourselves of our responsibilities. Right. It's really about identifying our, our roles and respecting ourselves. Yeah. And, and we're, we're, this is where I enter and this is where I begin. What is that? Can you define that? Or is it so tied up in other people, other things or other titles that we don't see ourselves? And so what women can do is really start to put the me back in time. And they can start with something that they could do right now, this moment, without a kit by going, okay, 10-minute break from 10 30 to 10 40 is my mind break. So I have a mindfulness moment through the middle of the day. Mm -hmm. And I say, okay, it's 10 minutes where I literally unplug and it, I get an alarm that goes off and says, this is your, <laughs> this is your time. Yeah. I schedule um, my prayer and meditation time. And the reason why my buzzer went off, which is so apropos at seven is because that's usually my reading time. Mm. And that's why, so I get up and say, okay, this is your time to read. You want to read new books? And I, and I, people say, well, I don't have the time. If you matter, you make the time. If you wanted that pair of shoes, you'd find the money. Yeah. So if you know that your day runs tight from nine to five or nine to eight, cause you have family, then it's okay to schedule you before nine or to schedule you after, you know, 9 p.m. If you want to, but do you see yourself on your, on your schedule? And, um, and so I think that that's probably a, a place to start and starting to, you know, say to themselves at the time that, you know, I'm worth this time. Yeah. I deserve this time. I need this time. You know, even though I'm on the same page as you, like literally putting it in my calendar actually brings up some anxiety yes 
of actually putting that on my calendar. Hey, this is for me. Cause my husband and I share calendars. Um, well, I have my calendar, but I, he sees everything I put on it and the things that are really important that I'm, you know, like scheduling this podcast, making sure the kids are quiet. That is very clearly marked on my calendar. But the idea of saying, this is me time brings up some, some issues. So I don't know. What would you suggest? <laughs> Do it anyway. Do it, Do anyway. it anyway. And then, and then as you work into like, again, I started with five minutes and worked myself up to longer. Okay. Yeah. So in the very beginning, real talk, I would go into the bathroom and just sit in the bathroom on the toilet for five minutes in the stall at work. Mm. Five minutes. That's that. I would just do that. And then, you know, as I worked my way up and I began to do other, other shifts, you know, and things is that I said, okay, I do want to take, you know, twice a week. You see what I mean? It doesn't have to be seven days a week. Gotcha. Okay. So are you telling me that at least once a to help mitigate that anxiety, those feelings of anxiousness, because this is a muscle you've got to train. Right. Right. And, and then, you have to ask yourself a question, but not during your me time. Why am I so anxious about sit, making time for me? Where you put that, I told you, I do inner court. Where does this feeling come from? Hold up, wait a minute. Yeah. Because if it was my family, if it was a friend, if it was anybody, if it was clubhouse, if it was, I could give them my time. Yeah. But when I said it's me, where is the root? of that anxiety and so that's the work that's like mm, never mind i just won't do it yeah I won't give myself the time definitely because, so you have to then lean into that and get to the root of it and when you get to the root of it root of it, you can pull it out it's like a weed when my mom when we moved from the city to what i call country living and of course we had this huge backyard my mom thought you know she needed a 15 acre not as it was big i'm exaggerating garden and so we just have to get up and like weeds would pop up and so she said make sure you pull them out from the root mm -hmm. pull them out from the root oh so you're just tucking off the top and they pop right back up yeah that's what happens with our anxieties get to the root of it so you can pull it out, mitigate it, and deal with it there. And then you'll see, oh, got it. This is why I'm triggered with this. And now here's how I can actually put a system in place to deal with it when I'm triggered. Notice I said when you're triggered. I didn't say you're never not going to be triggered. When you're triggered, you now know where the, it comes from, and you know what to spray on that weed. Hmm. Ooh, girl. All right. <laughs> I'm like, I'm going to have to figure out what the spray is and where the weeds are and all that good stuff. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. Like, I, I, I say it all the time. Part of the reason I started the podcast is, you know, for some self-healing and not to say as a replacement for therapy, I do that too. But um, other perspectives always seems to help me personally. So I love taking the time out um, and speaking to women who can help and possibly help other people. So um, where can we find the fabulous Dr. Dina? <laughs> the best place to find me is on um, Instagram 
at Dr. Dina Speaks, D-R-D-E-E-N-A-S-P-E-A-K-S, Dr. Dina Speaks. And if you go on my bio, um, you'll see a Shorby link. And so to listen to the podcast, Walking Through Glass, um, to look at um, Dream Journal, to sign up for you know my Overcoming Imposter Syndrome um, webinar that's coming up. And then I do a monthly webinar um, to do that. Um, you can pretty much, that's the best entry point, I think, to get to the various things that's there. Um, and again, I'm just so honored, you know, to be here. I'm so honored to share and to um, be able to speak to your audience. And here's something that I became aware of is that our testimony really gives everyone else the answer key to the test of their life. Mm. And so we need to share our testimony <laughs> more. And I began to do that. And that was part of my cross to bear because I'm a very private person. I'm very, um, I'm more I'm more introverted than extroverted and more, more of an ambivert in that sense. And I didn't realize how much me sharing my journey was going to impact others. And so thank you for inviting me because it's very therapeutic and a catharsis for me to also share with you because I'm always talking to myself too at the same time. <laughs> well, that's, I think, also one of the issues with our society in general, I wouldn't even say women, is we hold the issues in into ourselves, which means we don't, we can't relate and work through them with other people because we're afraid that they're going to judge us. And even though they may be going through the exact same thing, but we're too afraid to talk to them to figure that out. So I find my, my side of the conversations typically are a lot of me sharing. Um, and th that's why, because I find that it's relatable for me and it's relatable for them. And it opens up a brand new conversation and dialogue, uh, whether it be with me or with someone else that maybe they didn't even think was an issue prior to having the conversation. So I really appreciate you taking time out of your day, but this is part of a two-part series. So hopefully you will check out uh, the other side of the, the two-parter on Dr. Dina's podcast. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Other Side of 40. You can find us at our site, theothersideof40.com, and on Pinterest, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Other Side 40.